Well, I really do hope you will join us this evening for our praise and worship night. Even though we will be singing, it won't be the only thing we do. We will have an opportunity to pray together and we'll have an opportunity to just share. Um, it's a it's a much more, um, it's not as, um, I guess uh, Sunday mornings, I mean, a little bit more, have a little bit more formality to it. and Not that it's completely I- informal, but um, um, but there's a bit of that. And um, But it's always a good opportunity to really be connected, you know, that way. And I love what Jesse shared. That is that we would see this as a, a perfect way to end the Lord's Day. Um, so, having said that, I'm going to turn myself here to First Peter. I might have a few little coughing spells, and I, if I do that, I, I apologize. Uh, but I think I'm at the tail end of whatever it is that I... Uh, have or had or have I don't know how you say that uh, but uh, transitioning out Lord willing but uh, you might face a little bit of the you know aftermath of it so apologize R.C. Lenski the Lutheran commentator once said throw your soul into the work As if your one employer were the Lord. Well, that's really helpful. And that would change the workplace if we took that approach, don't you think? Martin Luther was a bit more colorful. A dairymaid can milk cows to the glory of God, he said. In other words, it doesn't matter what our work is. It can all be a way to glorify God. It can all be God's work. We get this thought, preaching is God's work, but doing what I do is my work. And sometimes we think of it that way, Lenski and Luther say it's all God's work. And that's got to be our approach. And you're going to find out here as we work through First Peter, why that needs to be our approach. Or you could take the words of Sinclair Ferguson who said, man was made to work because the God, excuse me, Because the God who made him was a working God. Let me say that again. Man was made to work because the God who made him was a working God. I mean, isn't that Jesus' point in John 5 when he said God is still working and so is the Son of Man, he said. Now that's all fitting for where we're headed in our study of First Peter. So if you're not there, you need to be there as I read the verses that we're going to be studying. And I'd like to read verses 18 through 21, actually. Starting at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor... If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now, 
That was the voice of God speaking to us. And I hope we treat His voice with the respect and honor that it deserves. We need to allow God to create our theology of work. The theology in the workplace. I found this quote from John MacArthur from 34 years ago. And I thought it perfectly fit for today. And as we place First Peter 2 right next to our culture, this is what it looks like. Listen to him. Quote, as I have tried to assess the culture that is ours today, and we do that all the time, I have to come to the conclusion that the only real sacred value in our society, the only real pervasive moral obligation is equal rights. That's basically our only morality. We don't have any sexual morality. We don't really have any ethical morality. We certainly don't have any spiritual standards. We know very little today of family values, of true friendship values. We don't understand the meaning of love. We really don't understand relationships. And we don't feed into those relationships a carefully thought out sense of values and morals. All we have left in this culture would be the pervasive sort of moral ethical statement of equal rights. That's the biggie in our society. That is, I suppose, the new morality. The morality of equal rights. Everybody has rights in our society. Nobody talks about sacrifice. Nobody talks about privileges. Everybody talks about rights. Everybody is into rights. We have women's rights. We have children's rights. We have homosexuals' rights. End quote. 34 years ago he said that. And I thought, well, he couldn't have been more true for today. It's all about equal rights. And if you have a right for this, then I should have a right for that. So watch this. If our rights are the most important thing, you know, the defining thing, the core supreme value, then when we feel those rights are being violated, we also feel like, you know, justified in rebelling, right? If you're going to take away the thing that is the most important thing, my rights, then I have the right to rebel, to strike, to go on strike, right? To speak out. We feel justified in protest. And we see that kind of mentality flowing right into the workplace. That's what's happened. You know, you see this all the time, but the question for us as Christians is, what about us? What is a proper response for us as believers in the workplace? when we feel like our rights have been violated or taken away or abused. Now, just imagine that for yourself. I mean, in this day and age where we have unions and 
all kinds of uh, protests and strikes, this is relevant. I mean, just recently there were there was the airline strike with the pilots. You remember that? And then the the Writers Guild strike, where you had the screenwriters for movies and plays going strike. That literally just I think that just ended or something like that. Now, what do what do we do as Christians though in the workplace with that kind of stuff? And we see the world responding that way and embracing it, the, the value of equal rights. Verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. That is the heart of the next point that we're going to be studying in First Peter 2. Now that's really counterculture, isn't it? But that's our word. In fact, let me say this way. That's our that's a Christian word. That's our Christian word. That's our word. What word? Submission. We as believers are to be marked out by that. And we're never more like the world when we're not marked by that. When we fight submission, we move into the world's territory. When we fight a submissive attitude, when we fight that that be a marker or description of, our, of, of ourselves, we're moving into the world's territory. We're marked out by that word. In Luke 6.46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And what Jesus was saying is, where is the submission? You can't say Jesus is Lord, but then have no submission. Where is it? That's incongruent. Christians are marked by this word submission. Let me say it a different way. That is the main part of our transformation at salvation. I think it's partly because we maybe have the, a, a worldly view of, of that word submission. And we need to bring it back to, to surrender, surrender to Christ. We become submissive people. And when we say that, we don't mean weak people. First Thessalonians 1, he said that when you receive the gospel, you receive it in power. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2. So to become a Christian is not to become a weak person, it's to become a powerful person. And maybe this is why it's so hard for you to really embrace the idea of submission, because you think of a powerful person, but you don't think of the word submission. But our Lord does. It is the greatest and most powerful position when you have the very righteousness of Christ to couple that with submission. Peter launches into this and latches really onto that from Jesus. Notice chapter 2 verse 13. 
Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Look at verse 18. Servants, be submissive. Move on to chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. He's still talking about submission. Chapter 3, verse verse 5. In former times, the holy women also being submissive to their own husbands. That was a long time ago. Later in chapter 5, verse 5, be subject to your elders, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. In our passage, we are called to submit to our bosses. And so we need to find out what this is all about. And I'll tell you, as we work our way through it, it is very, very practical. Submission. Now, you remember how Peter portrays us as Christians. Uh, let me remind you, and there are really three ways that he does. In verses 11 to 12, he says, we are as strangers to this world. Now, what's so strange about us? I mean, is it the way we dress or the, the way we talk or I don't know? I mean, it could be the people that we hang out with. Maybe all the above. No, actually, verses 11 and 12, he says the thing that makes us strangers to this world is that we seek to abstain from fleshly lusts. In other words, fleshly lusts are a big deal to us. The world makes either no deal or little deal about that. I remember talking to this guy, he was telling me, this unbeliever, my wife's okay with me when I say I can, I can look, but I can't touch. And I think, that's it. That is, that's, the, that's the core. That's the uh, mantra of the world that thinks that fleshly lusts are not that big of a deal. It's a big deal. Because it's a big deal to the Lord. Listen, he says here, we... Make war against lust. Is that you? Have you brought out the canon of Scripture and aimed that thing right at your lust and said, "Uh uh-uh, not taking it anymore. You're going down. And I might have to get this weapon back out again tomorrow and the next day. We wage war against the fleshly lusts. And that's strange to the world. See. Secondly, as citizens in this world. Now, no, not of this world, but in this world. We're strangers to it. We're not part of their system, but we are to be citizens in it. I mean, we might be tempted to think, well... Let's just go then live, let's isolate, let's shelter, let's, let's kind of move, move away from it. But he says, no, 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 go in it and be a citizen in it, but be lights, see? And I keep thinking that, that to myself, you know, here I, I, I coach uh, football. It's actually one of the one major ways I'm, I'm able to be in, in the world. I spend so much of my time outside of that, so I'm, you know, sitting behind a desk, I'm studying, I'm reading. But I keep telling myself when I'm there, make sure you're a light. 
Make sure you're a light that they can see Christ. Be in it as a citizen. How? What does he say? Submitting to the governing authorities. Showing them what the kingdom of God looks like on the inside of their man-made, satanic-led kingdom. Show them. And then now as servants before the world. That's the third one. Servants before the world. Now why is it so so important that we live this way? Verse 15 tells us, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Who are the foolish men? Unbelievers. Live before unbelievers in such a way that you silence them. Oh, is this like the winning the debates? No. That's not what he means. Live before them, you silence them. What's that living look like? One word, submission. What does God do with that submission? He silences them. How? Verse 12. By saving them. By saving them. He closes their mouth long enough for them to hear the gospel and then receive it. Isn't that your testimony? Boy, I was a, you know, it's sad to think, when I look back at me, I was an unbeliever. When I was an unbeliever, it's like, boy, did I really, I was a blabber, you know? Boy, I, my mouth was just running constantly and saying nothing of substance. How did the Lord save me? In fact, this, this probably should be my testimony. Here's how the Lord saved me. He shut my mouth and I heard the gospel. And then the next time I opened it, it was in repentance. See, that's how it worked. Now, notice verse 12, in uh, in verse 12, the day of visitation. That's what the day of visitation is. A day where they see their sins, they shut their mouths, and they see that Jesus is real because of your life, and they turn to Christ, and they glorify God by doing that. All right. So, put it all together. How can we silence the critics of Christianity? Abstain from fleshly lusts. Submit to the governing authorities. And third, are you ready? Submit to your boss. Yeah. It's that simple. You say, really? Yeah. The world just doesn't see people living like that. And for real, really for us, it's just Jesus, right? I mean, it's not even ourselves. There's, there's nothing about ourselves naturally that would live that way. It is the power of the Holy Spirit in us because Jesus is in us. He's our Lord. And so this third point is really all about giving up your rights in the workplace for a greater purpose. Have you ever thought about going to work that way? Well, you need to, and I'm to help you do that. I'm kind of a picture guy. I really am. I'm afraid to say that. I'm the picture guy. I'm the guy that, like, you hand me a book and I go, well, it's kind of thick and everything. Please tell me there are at least some sections in there that have some pictures. Right? So at least I can go, oh, okay, so sweet. That's got, you know, I need an intermission every once in a while, right? You read your 40, 50 pages and you get to the picture and go, all right, 
I see what you're doing, what you're saying, then I keep going. All right, I'm going to give it to you. Now, there are some great illustrations of what I just said about giving up your rights in the workplace for a greater purpose. And I've got to show you a few of them. First of all, let's, let's look at David's life. David's life. I'm going to give you just the short version here, but if you want to have a marker in your mind or write it down, or even go there, that's fine. 1 Samuel 15 through 31 gives the whole story. Now, you could go there if you want, but I'm going to go pretty fast, so, all right? Here we go. Chapter 15. Saul is king. Okay, he, he's the people's choice. He was tall and handsome guy, and, and they all really thought he would make a great king. And they chose Saul, and he disobeys and dishonors God, and then God rejects Saul as king and tells uh, Saul through Samuel the prophet that the Lord was taking the kingdom away from Saul. And he tells Saul, hey, listen, you will never have a son sit on the throne. Then we get to chapter 16. The Lord has Samuel go to this family, chooses David to be king. God chooses David. Why? You see, probably he was the opposite of of Saul. He wasn't handsome. No, it actually says he was. Maybe it was because he wasn't charismatic. No, he was. Well, maybe it's because he wasn't strong. I mean, Saul was tall. Well, David... Wrestled a lion and a, he took care of I mean, He just, he did things. He was a strong guy. He was amazing. Defeated people. Took down Goliath. No, he was strong. Well, what are you trying to tell us then? What's, what's, this, what's the deal about David? He was a man after God's own heart. See? So Samuel anoints David with oil And that was that. David is to be king. Wonderful. And so he starts, so he begins to be king right after that, right? No. No. When is David supposed to be king? What I love about 1 Samuel 16 is he never says. He just anoints him and leaves. He doesn't say, all right, when, uh, okay, when, uh, let's see, third month, the moon is going to be full, and the harvest right, and then you'll know, right? And everything will be at peace. Nope. And so he goes on living his life. Chapter 17, David kills Goliath, rescues Israel from the Philistines. Chapter 18, David befriends Saul's son, Jonathan. They become best friends. They form this deep friendship of fellowship. And David is given Saul's daughter, Michael, later. And so David is really part of the family now. And what does Saul think of this? Well, the people love David more than Saul. And so Saul hates it. And he hates David. In fact, so much so that he tries to kill him by throwing a spear at him. Right? He tried to make David shish kebab. And he couldn't do that because he always missed him. I don't know how, but he did. Now, at that point, I think that David could have, could have pulled the, uh, hey, wait a minute. I've been anointed king. It's my right to have this throne. He doesn't do that, ever. Not one word. In fact, actually, I'm going to show you here in a moment, it is quite the opposite of that. Uh, 
David allows himself to become a fugitive when Saul puts an army of men together, 3,000 of them, to find David and to destroy him. And two times David comes across Saul and has the opportunity to kill Saul without Saul even knowing that he's there. But he doesn't. Why? Because he says this. This is the Lord's anointed. How can I even raise a hand against him? Uh, okay, David, here you go. I get it. You're taking the high road here. But I'm going to give you a whole bunch of reasons why you feel pretty okay about you know taking this guy out, right? Number one, he's crazy, right? Number two, you know, he's throwing a spear at you. I mean, this guy is after you. He has nothing but evil for you. Not only that, he's against God. He's, uh, you know, later on he's going to be working with, uh, you know, Spiritists, and so he's into some strange stuff. Oh, there's a lot of reasons why you could take this guy out. But David says, yeah, but there's one big reason why I can't, and my conscience is bound to it. Why is that? Because he's the Lord's anointed. The Lord anointed him. He says, um, I'm committed to honoring the king. What? First Peter 2.17, sound familiar? Honor the king. Then you can read all about that yourself in First Samuel 16-26 to get all the details of it. But David, I mean, he, David put himself, I mean, he trusted the Lord and his timing and he knew the Lord would have David be submissive to the position of the king because the Lord was the one who made Saul king. How could David let Saul go when he wanted to kill David? And maybe he also was aware of Proverbs 21.1. The Lord moves the king's heart like channels of water. big lesson we pull away from there is that David was not about his own rights. That's how David lived in in his workplace. How about Paul in the New Testament? There's your second example. Acts chapter 20. This goes a little fast too. The Holy Spirit has told Paul bonds and afflictions await him. Acts 21, Paul goes to Jerusalem to bring some money that he collected for the church to relieve them of their, of their poverty. While there, the Jews stir up the crowd and blast him with false accusations to arrest him. And they want to they kill him the same way they did with Jesus, right? But all through this, there were moments when Paul is beaten and then other times when Roman authorities step in and say, hey, that's too far. This man is a citizen of Rome and so forth. In Acts 22, Paul gets to make make his defense before the Jews and before a council of elders. And there were Romans there in Israel. And remember in Acts 20, Paul was told that he was going to be bound up in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit told him that. And Paul knows what they, they're doing is illegal and that it's shady. But never once does he say, hey, this is illegal. Where are my rights? He doesn't say that. Why? He's more concerned about the Lord's will. What does he know? The Lord said, you're going to be 
in bonds and afflictions taken back to, to Rome. All right. So that's my, that must be what's going to happen. He's more concerned about the Lord's will than his, than his human rights. His rights as some citizen, see. And so he shares the gospel there, and the Jews want to kill him for it. And so in Acts twenty two twenty four, the commander ordered Paul to be examined by scourging. That is, severe beating. And watch verse 25. Paul says, um, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, Say, hey, what are you about to do? This, this guy's a Roman. The commander came in and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? Paul said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Huh. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. Now, what is Paul's strategy here? What is he trying to do? Is he trying to get his freedom? Is he trying to, 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 to get let go? To make his rights known so that he can be defended? No. You say, how do you know that? Because from chapters 23 to 28, over and over and over, Paul has opportunities to be freed and he doesn't take them. Why? Because he is aware of the Lord's will. He eventually gets to Rome. In fact, Acts 27, the ship taken him there gets into a wreck and Paul could have escaped, but he doesn't. Why? He's, he's bound by the Roman law to appear before Caesar. See, but isn't he innocent? Yes. Does he know that? Yes. And if you examine all that he says from Acts 21 all the way to the end of 28, what you see him doing over and over is not defending himself, but defending the gospel. He just The thing that he wants to do, he just wants to share the gospel. He knows that he's innocent, but there's something greater at stake. What is that? The Lord's will. And what is the Lord's will for Paul? Preach the gospel. That's all he cares about. Later in Philippians... Paul talks about this very moment. Listen, chapter 1, verse 13. So that my imprisonment and the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. He says, you know what? These chains gave me an opportunity to preach the gospel and infuse encouragement and motivation to other brothers and sisters in the Lord to go out and preach the gospel. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't get my rights defended for one moment if it meant that, I, we, that we couldn't have that opportunity. 
God is saving people and He's using the church to preach the gospel. What do my rights, what would my rights gain that I haven't been able to accomplish by being in prison? Now that's Paul's view about his rights as a worker and as a person under the governing authorities. You say, well, why are you telling us this? Because when you look at David and Paul, that's what submission looks like in the workplace. That's what it looks like in the workplace. David had the right to be king. Paul had the right to be free. Neither exercised it. Why? Because something greater was there. What? The Lord's will. What he wanted in all of this was that. And the lesson is that it is our depravity that wants to fight for our rights and protest and fight back against anything that threatens our freedom in that in the workplace. Now Jesus spoke to this, and I want you to hear these words because I really do believe these are the words that are behind Peter's theology in what he says in 1 Peter 2, 18-25. I want you to listen to this. This is Luke 6.32, and you might want to write this down, and it's through verse 35. If you love love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom... You expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Now here's where it comes in. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Underline it in your mind. Expecting nothing in return. Do this work and don't expect any credit for it. Do your work and don't expect the pat on the back. Don't expect the raise. Don't expect the the plaque that says you might be awesome, right? What Peter says is this. What you need to think about your rights when you go to that workplace and pour out your heart and your soul and your body in it is this, expecting nothing in return. I mean, that's hard to do. And I'll tell you, only one thing gets you there. A godly submission. That's it. Listen, a submission that operates on the basis of God's sovereign grace. And that's what Peter wants to teach us. To show us what that looks like. Now, Paul had a word on that too. And uh, if you want to mark this down, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'll read it. It's uh, starting in verse 20, and I think it goes all the way through verse 24. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Now, when he says called, he's talking about salvation. The salvation call. He says each man must remain in that condition. What condition? Your life station. Okay? Your life station. Your life condition. 
Now watch this, verse 21. Were you called while a slave? Did the Lord save you while you were a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. He says, were you a slave when you became a Christian? Don't worry about it. Verse 22, for he who called you in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. He says, I don't care what they call you out there before the Lord. You're his freedman. You're free. You remember Paul in prison. He sure didn't act like a person who was in prison. He said, I can do anything I want except for these chains. I can still preach. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And people sometimes take, hear that last part and they think, oh, see there, fight slavery and everything. Well, listen, injustice is terrible. We, we should not support injustice. But he is not here saying, make it your aim to change you know, the, the culture around you, the social setting. Because otherwise, then what he made, said at the very beginning makes no sense when he said, remain in that condition that you were called. Right? Here's the clincher, verse 24. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. End quote. Your life's ambition, he says, should not be to try to undo, to get rid of slavery. It should be to live for Christ. Oh, and if slavery can be gotten rid of, then great. But that's not the ambition. You can follow Christ whether slave or not. We get so mixed up about this. Your Christian position doesn't give you the right to protest and get rid of your station or status as a slave. That's a social structure. And Paul says it's not that important to change your social structure. Listen, it won't change your life. And there have been plenty of slaves that have been free that have gone on to live selfish, immoral lives. That's not an improvement. Now, I'm calling this sovereign grace in the workplace. And I want to show you why. And I realize that I'm still giving you the introduction. (laughs) If Peter is saying the same thing as Jesus and Paul then what he is saying is don't try to change the situation that the Lord has you in. Learn submission in it. Know that God has you in that place to get you to experience His grace. What's His grace look like in the workplace? Submission. You know, you have this boss and he might be good and gentle, but 
and you might, but maybe somebody, maybe you might have, I don't know, you might have a boss that's not that good a gentleman. He might be an unreasonable one. And Peter's point is, what does it matter? He says, oh, if only I had the good and gentle boss. That would, be, that would be great, but honestly, what does it matter? Why? Why do you say that? Because God put you in it so you can learn what His grace is like when you submit the workplace situation that you're in. You say, are you, are you sure this is about grace? Yeah, take a look at verse 19. See the word for? That's a purpose word. For this finds favor, and then verse 20, this finds favor with God. That's the Greek word for grace, by the way. Charis, grace. Okay, what's God's grace look like in the workplace? Submission. All right, three points on submission in the workplace. That's where we're at. Let me give you the first one. And the first point, let's call it the exhortation for submission. The exhortation for submission. Verse 18. The uh, second point that I'm going to give you is the end for submission. And the third one is going to be the example. But we're only going to see the first and a little bit of the second one this morning. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Now that is a command, all right? He says um, it's a mandate. I mean, we need to know, I mean, this is not a suggestion. This is not an opinion. This is not Paul saying, you know, it'll, it'll go better for you if you submit in the workplace, IMO, you know, in my opinion. That's not Paul doing that. This is Paul saying, you have to be this way. It's a sin not to be this way. This is an exhortation. This is a mandate. Now to really get this mandate or this exhortation, you have to, um, we need to know a little something about Roman slavery. That's the word for servants here, slave. And I'll, we'll get to that word in a moment. But let me tell you a few things here. The Roman Empire's slavery was, was not like slavery that we're used to thinking about for the 17th and 1800s, okay? In the Civil War time, this is, sometimes when we think of slavery, we, that's all we can think of. And I think we have to separate ourselves from that thinking because that's not it. And I'm going to show you this. Now, oftentimes, the prisoners of war became slaves. And uh, sometimes you were born into it. And still others got there by bad and irresponsible decisions. In fact, even the Old Testament talks about making yourself a slave. If you find yourself in a place where you can't you know, afford or get out of the poverty, you can sell yourself. And then there became a year of jubilee where all the slaves were set free. Okay? Now, you had good masters and really bad ones. And the thing to understand is that slaves were nothing more than property to the owners. And I want to give you some thoughts on the good ones and the not-so-good ones here. And I'll I'll let some other really, you know, the guys that have dug into history uh, tell it to you. This guy's name is Arthur A. Ruprecht. 
And he tells us this on the life and status of a slave in the Roman Empire. Quote, The living conditions of many slaves were better than those of free men who often slept in the streets of the city or lived in very cheap rooms. There is considerable evidence to suggest that the slaves slaves lived within the confines of their master's house. They usually lived on the top floor of their owner's city house or country villa. In Pliny's Laurentian villa, the quarters for the slaves and freedmen were in a separate section of the house, but were considered attractive enough to be used for the entertainment of overnight guests. The slave was not inferior to the freedmen of similar skills in regard to food and clothing. That most slaves in Rome were as well dressed as free men is indicated in an unusual way. Seneca stated that legislation was introduced in the Senate that slaves should be required to wear a type of clothing that would distinguish them from free men. Seneca also described the ones that weren't that same way. You may take a slave in chains and at your pleasure expose him to every test of endurance. But too great violence in the striker has often dislocated the joint or left a sinew fastened in the very teeth it has broken. Anger has left many a man crippled, many disabled, even when it found its victim submissive. What I did is I put together, right next to one another, two people talking about slaves, one talking about them in a great situation, and the other in a terrible situation where they can be abused greatly. So why do I do that? Look at what Peter said. What does he say? Not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. They came in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And this was very important. I'll tell you why. I read one commentator who who believes that as much as up to 80% of the people that were in the church were slaves. This would represent a massive portion who he's writing to. He's, he must speak at this level. Now, when a person became a Christian, you had to overcome some challenges. So think about that. You've come out of that, or you're in it. Maybe you're this, you, you know, a slave. But you have to overcome some challenges after becoming a Christian. I mean, first, the emphasis on being free when you became a Christian, right? I mean, doesn't the Bible speak to that? Romans 6, free slaves of Christ now. Galatians 5, it was for freedom that Christ Jesus set us free. I mean, Jesus himself even said that, right? Romans 8, he said, excuse me, John chapter 8, the truth will set you what? Free. And then the, the, the Jews responded, we have never been enslaved to anyone. He said, you're not understanding something. You've been enslaved all your life to sin. So when you be, became a Christian, you had 
this sense of freedom because God gave it to us at salvation. All your, all our sin debts are gone, right? We're free. And you become a Christian and you could just picture this. Thinking to yourself, let's see, I'm free. I'm free in the Lord. I mean, I, I ought to be free from my master. If I'm free in the Lord, I should be free from, I should have freedom everywhere. Free in every way, right? That's my right. There's a second challenge that you would have. Listen to this second one. I think this second one would be a doozy. You have masters and slaves getting saved in the church. And and sometimes you had the master and the slave of the same household. And, you know, you would have a situation where God gives you the spiritual gifts that he wants. And there was, we are, we know from a documented, I think it's in Romans 16 that speaks to this. There were some situations where the slave is gifted in teaching and becomes an elder in the church. And so the church, what does 1 Timothy 5 say? Submit to your elders, right? We just read that, 1 Peter 5. Submit to your elders. You get the slave in the church. He's an elder. His master comes to that church. What's that master supposed to do? Supposed to do? Submit to him. Oh, boy. And then he goes home and what happens? It turns the other way, right? Legally. That's a challenge. Those masters came under under that in, in the church and that would be a challenge to work through. <coughs> now what's that tell us? Let's let's give up kind of bear this down a little bit. You can be equal spiritually, but in the human sense, not equal. In other words, the Lord's guidance here is to not go into that social structure and change it. He didn't say that. Equal yet gifted with one as a leader and the other may be in a support role. And so you couldn't say, I'm free in Christ, but then protest your slave position on the basis of that freedom. And there could be some bleeding over with the slave after becoming a Christian and getting a leadership position in the church, having a leadership role over his master if God saved him. And and what we learn at this point was that Peter and Paul and John and all the New Testament writers never pushed for equal rights. That wasn't a thing. It's not a concern for the church, ever. That's why he says, if you get free, great. But that's not a great concern. If it happens, it happens. And it all comes under the sovereign hand of God. I mean, I think it was 1809, uh, William Wilberforce was used in England to, to bring about the abolition of slavery there in England. Wonderful. 
The Lord, it's, well, how could that happen? Did it happen through the church? No. Actually, it happened through the government. The Lord happened to have, save a man named William Wilberforce and have that saved man who was a politician and have him there in the midst of that produce that action against slavery. Wonderful. But don't mistake that for being like a mandate from Scripture. He did it because his heart cared for the severe treatment of other humans. And our hearts should be moved that same way too. First Corinthians 7, were you called in that condition of slave? Remain that way. Galatians 3, hey, whether slave or free, we're just all one in the Lord. Unity in it all. Slaves and masters, it doesn't matter. There's only one Lord and we're all slaves of him. See? And it wasn't an issue in the early church. I mean, they never made a big deal about slavery in the church. And the deal that they made was this, that we're reading. In other words, there was no movement to abolish it. It didn't bother them. They never sought to get rid of it. It doesn't mean they endorsed it. It just wasn't an issue when God saved a person and put his love in all of them. See, Equal spiritually, lots of variety socially. In other words, the spiritual was more important than the social status. He had the poor mixed with the rich, slave with masters, Gentiles with Jews, didn't matter. Now what's the exhortation then? Be submissive to your masters with all respect. Now let's break that down even more. Look at the word, uh, first the word servants. In your, some of your versions, that might be translated a little bit different than the word servant, but it's the, it's the Greek word oikotai, oikotai. And that might not mean much to you, but I'll just tell you this. The normal word for servant is diakonia. That's not this word. And then sometimes there's another word translated servant, and that's the word doulos, which actually means slave, and that's not this word. It's oikotai. Made up of two words. One word, oikos, meaning house. And then the word for slave. And so it is a house slave. Rogers and Rogers. Ooh, got to love that as a title for a you know, little book here. Rogers and Rogers. They wrote this. Two guys named Rogers. <laughs> the word denotes household slaves many who might be well-educated and hold responsible positions in their households. Now, while they lived and served and ate, they, they, they did that in the context of this slave situation. And so where they, where they lived, they, 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 they possibly taught children and farmed and Some of them were even used as doctors, believe it or not. So they had to be educated and they were caretakers in the home, really. So that's what he means by service. And then you have the word masters. And in the Greek, the word is despotes. And it's interesting. There's a few different words. It's not kurios. 
Despotes is where we get our English word despot from. It is a, a, a ruler, one who has absolute authority, complete authority and control over another. So you have this kind of person he's saying you, you need to be submissive to. And then you have the word for submissive, which is a participle in the present tense. And it is basically saying this, be constantly submissive. Don't let there go a day where you're not. Whoa. Always be this, no exceptions. Boy, I tell you what, that would stand out, wouldn't it? An unbeliever can maybe tolerate a little bit, but eventually there's a boiling point, there's a threshold where they say enough is enough. And then you have the attitude in verse 18, with all respect, and that's the word phobos, where we get our word phobia from, literally fear. And I do not believe that it is directed to the master. He's not saying fear the master. I believe here it has to do with fearing God. In other words, be submissive to your master out of a fear for God. Always mindful of God's presence at work, see? Jesus is here at work with me, so be submissive to your boss. And that's the attitude. We know he has in mind fearing God because he said it in chapter 2, verse 17. He said it in chapter 1, verse 17. He he speaks of fearing God in chapter 3, verse 2, in chapter 3, verse 15. Always a fear of God. He's saying, why bring God in God when it comes to the master-slave relationship? Because this is a social structure that he had going back then, and it was instituted by him in this employee-employer relationship. God designed it that way for order and for productiveness. Now at this point, In this exhortation, this exhortation to be submissive, you could just hear a person say, yeah, but you don't know what my boss is like. You haven't met my boss. I feel like you're saying this generally, but there's got to be an exception clause because I've got an abusive boss that you have no clue what he's like. Okay, well, look at verse 18. And tell me what you think he means. Not only to those who are good and gentle. Well, we like that. Sometimes you get those kind. Verse 18. But also to those who are unreasonable. And that's the Greek word scolios. Where we get our English word curvature of the spine from. Scoliosis. And what he means is a crooked boss curved up the wrong way. I mean, you could even translate it perverse boss. Twisted boss. Broken boss. Boss who doesn't walk a straight line with morality or integrity or wisdom. Crooked. Unfair. What do I do with a boss like that? What does Peter say? Submit. What? Now you can understand when I say this is God's sovereign grace in the workplace. 
You say, um, for me to do that, I will need a strength beyond my own. That's right. That's why you need sovereign grace in the workplace. Now today we have more options. Ah, you know, I don't really like this job. Boss is not great. I'll just go find a different job. Listen, you couldn't do that in Peter's days. You know, you're here you are as a slave. You're, that's it. You're locked in. Very rare to get out of slavery. Why? Because you were owned. And by the way, if you want a great picture of what it means to be in a situation where you had a believing boss, just read Philemon. It's a wonderful story. You remember that letter in the Bible? Here you had a guy named Onesimus, and he was a slave to this wonderful Christian named Philemon. And Onesimus ran away to Rome and happened to get put into the prison. And guess who his cellmate was? I mean, Paul. Lucky him. And of course, Paul couldn't help himself, and he shared the gospel, and God saved Onesimus, this runaway slave. And now, by law, Philemon could have had him severely beaten for that and could have even taken his life with no recourse action. And Paul convinces Onesimus, hey, you need to go back to your, now that you're getting out of prison, you need to go back to your master. And maybe Onesimus is thinking, well, I might be going to my death. And so Paul writes this letter called Philemon to assure him that God truly saved Onesimus and that Paul... Excuse me, and that, that, that Philemon should take him back as a slave again. But as a Christian slave. One other thing to note about this point most of the letters in the New Testament deal with this master slave relationship. Ephesians 6 5 through 9, 1 Timothy 6 1 through 2, Colossians 3 22 to 25. And there are other places too. But I want you to know, Paul never tries to get rid of slavery. That's the Lord's deal. That's to deal with the state and governing authorities if they want to do that. But you see the same exhortation in each section. Submit to your masters even if they are crooked. Why? Because it is the Lord Jesus you're really serving. All right, that's the exhortation, the command. Let me just introduce you to you the next one. There's purpose. Verse 15, God uses all that submission to save others, but there's more purpose in this. Point number two, the end for submission. The end for submission. In other words, what's the purpose? Where's it going? What's the end deal? What's the bottom line? Verse 19, here's the end for submission. It's purpose. For this finds favor. And then in the verse 20, this finds favor with God. Favor. Charis, grace. Do it for grace. That's what he's saying. That's why you submit. Do it for grace. Open the door for grace. God's sovereign grace in your life. Now the Bible is always dealing with our motives for why we do what we do. I mentioned that Ephesians 6.5 passage. Listen to it. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Fear and trembling. 
That's not talking about going around scared of your boss and fearing him and trembling before a human leader. The fear and trembling has to do with doing it before a holy God who sees all, who has law that is unbending. And I believe the fear and trembling has to do with Hebrews 12, discipline for going outside the lines with God. Ephesians 6.6 6 gives even more support to what Peter means. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers. Only submitting to them, you know, when they see you. And what about when the boss isn't around? Verse 6, but as, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You know what God's will is? To submit to your boss. And again, we can see the reason. I mean, we don't pick our bosses, right? He or she might be difficult to work under or for. So verse 19, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For the sake of God. Same thing as Paul in Ephesians 6, from the heart, for the sake of conscience toward God. All right, we're going to have to get back more to this here next Lord's Day. But let me conclude here. Do you know what Peter is trying to get us to do in the the workplace? It's real simple. Stop living for this earth, for this world. Some of us think that we are owed a great boss who will make working there a joy and a reward. You might not get that. And the Lord says, the answer isn't to strike or rebel. It is to submit. It is to demonstrate that you live for another kingdom that the eyes can't see and to watch and see how the Lord uses that to point that boss to himself. Wouldn't that be good? Wow. Boy, living in this world for the believer is so radically different than how the world wants you to live it. May we be the mark of that kind of godliness in this world through our submission. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father, we have just learned about some tough things, some things that really challenge our heart, that really address it and speak to it and confront it. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us to receive what your word says and give you glory for it. Make us submissive servants in the workplace. We pray for this. In Jesus' name, amen.